Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, that through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, that by which we have been given to us his exceedingly great and magnificent promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. As we prepare to study God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's direction on our time. Our Father, we are thankful for your word because as we study your word, we come to know reality as you created it, not as man has experienced it or imagined it or rationalized it, but we understand truth, truth that is embedded within your very character and is exemplified in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Father, we know that as we study your word, that it is truth, for our Lord said that we are to be sanctified by your word. Your word is truth. And Father, this is a concept today that is often rejected by the world around us, choosing instead the mirage of moral relativity, that we can each make up our own minds and have our own values, which is just exemplifies the rebellion of the creature against the creator. So, Father, now as we study your word and we come to understand the things that have happened to us at the instant of salvation, as they relate to God the Holy Spirit, help us to understand what your word reveals to us and to see its significance in setting us apart uh, uniquely in all of history that every believer in the church age is given these assets, these blessings, these privileges, and that they are there for us to develop, to learn about from your word, and to live on the basis of, for this is part of that high position that we have been given and are called to live in light of. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. And we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3, 4, and 5. And I just want to uh, review these. I'll read these uh, to you just to put it back in your mind before we uh, continue on. In verse 3, Paul continuing to explain what this worthy walk is back in verse 1, that we have been challenged to walk worthy of that high position to which we have been called or summoned. He says that part of this is we are to uh, diligently work or endeavor uh, to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And to remind you, 
This unity is established at the instant of our salvation. Every believer is uh, united in the body of Christ by especially the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which we studied last time. And that he goes on to say that there is one body. Notice there are seven ones in the next three verses. Each of these will go, take us back to the concept of unity of the Spirit in verse 3. There is one body, that is the body of Christ, the church. We are all in one body, not a local body, but the universal body of Christ made up of all believers in in the church age from the day of Pentecost up until the present, and that composes the, the church, the body of Christ that there is one Spirit, that is God the Holy Spirit, and the ministries that he uh, has toward us at the instant of salvation and throughout our spiritual life, and that this all relates to that calling, that, that high position, that exalted position to which we have been summoned, verse 1, and that is our hope. Uh, hope in the Bible is never some sort of of just uh, optimistic wishfulness. It is a confident expectation. It is not thinking, well, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon. I need to work in the yard. Or maybe somebody's thinking, well, I hope it does rain this afternoon, so I won't have to work in the yard. But that is, we don't really know what will happen. It's just wishful optimism. But in the Bible, hope is a word that conveys a certainty, an expectation, something that is absolutely stable, and that is the the hope of our calling. It looks forward to the future that God has for us in heaven. And then, uh, so verse 4 all relates to ministries of the Holy Spirit, verse 5 relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see another of Paul's uh, Trinitarian uh, expressions here. He talks about the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So we're looking at these ministries of God the Holy Spirit, and I want to just review us a little bit, maybe make a couple of more comments before we go forward into uh, the next two, which have to do with the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit in every church-age believer, and then the sealing uh, by the Holy Spirit. So what we have looked at so far is that the first two of these ministries of God the Holy Spirit that we've studied are to the world, the world at large, to the world of unbelievers. And the first has to do with a restraining ministry because he restrains evil uh, during this age. And uh, we only think things are bad, but they could be a whole lot worse. And the second we looked at is the convicting ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And then 
we have looked at these ministries that take place at the instant of salvation. Now, we look at these, and they all happen simultaneously. They all happen instantly at the same time. We're regenerated, we're baptized by the Spirit, we're indwelt by the Spirit, we're sealed by the Spirit, and at the instant of salvation, we're also filled by the Spirit. That is the only one that can be lost, and we lose it and recover it many times, and we'll discuss that probably next time. But these happen simultaneously, but there is a logical order to them that, first of all, we are born again, and as part of that, simultaneously, there's this identification uh, with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and also at that time the Holy Spirit indwells us and seals us. So as we saw last time with the baptism by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, that there is some, some issues related to this. It is related to the translation not to the theology that we have learned and understood. Uh, That's clear. Some people, you you think you got a little confused last time maybe, although you've heard it many times. I take a group of pastors through this. We had to go through it all, all over again Friday morning because some of them haven't spent enough time with Greek. Just as you all know, I you start talking numbers, I'm lost. Okay, some of us just don't do well with numbers. Some don't do well with grammar. You start talking grammar, and some of those in the group who have their doctorates, and you start talking details of grammatical exegesis, and there are aspects of that wherein their brain freezes. So do not feel like you are alone if you felt a little lost last week. Uh, you got the end result, and that's important. But it's also important to understand the correction to some problems and the way this is expressed. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now, just a side note that uh, I want to bring up again in light of our study in Ephesians 4 is we have to remember what Paul taught in the second half of Ephesians 2. In the second half of Ephesians 2, he started off talking to the Ephesians as Gentiles. In God's plan, the world is divided into two basic groups. There are the Jews who are God's chosen people, those he called out through Abraham, the head of the uh, Jewish uh, race, and he has uh, made certain promises to them. And in the Old Testament, they were distinct from all of the other ethnicities because of God's purpose and plan for Israel. And so there were certain things in the worship of God wherein Gentiles were excluded Women were also excluded, and uh, slaves were excluded. God was teaching certain things in that. And the only one who had access directly to God and go to go into the Holy of Holies could only do that once a year, and it was the high priest. And he did that on the Day of Atonement, which, by the way, is coming up in September on the Jewish calendar. 
So this is, uh, understand that. And so God has this distinction. It's the only racial distinction that has been legitimized by God in all of human history, and that God abolished that at the cross because the purpose for that wasn't because of racial superiority. It was because God had a purpose that he wanted to bring to fulfillment among the Jewish people. It was through them that he would send the Savior who would go to the cross and to die for our sins. And so now in Ephesians 2, Paul is saying that it reminds the Gentile Ephesians that you were once Gentiles called uncircumcision as, as sort of an insult by the Jews by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. And he says that's when you were unsaved, basically uses several phrases to describe that. And then he says, but now, and that is now in this church age, once you trust in Christ as Savior, that you have been brought near by the blood of Christ by his death, that he is our, pre- our priest and he has, our, he is our peace rather, he has broken down the middle wall of separation, which he goes on to describe as the law. So now in the body of Christ, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. This is what uh, Paul is emphasizing in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. Jew and Gentile, those ethnic distinctions that were valid under the Mosaic law have been eradicated, abolished at the cross. Slave or free, that those distinctions in terms of their service to God has been eradicated. And so we are unified in the body of Christ. That is part of the background that must be kept in mind as you read through passages like Ephesians 4, 3 through 6. We keep the unity. The unity that he's talked about in the context is this unity now between Jew and Gentile, all believers. There is no legitimate basis for making an issue out of one's ethnicity, out of one's culture or subculture, uh, because the only thing that matters is that we are one in Christ and we are to maintain that unity, and that unity is explained through those seven ones in verses 4 through 6. So at the cross, we put up our chart. On the left side, the eternal realities. This is our legal position before God from the instant of salvation. And what this chart does is to help you understand that there are some things in the Scriptures that are addressed in relation to our position, our legal position and identity in Christ, and others that are related to our spiritual life as a child of God in the church age. And what we're focusing on really is that which has to do with eternal, unchangeable realities once we trust in Christ. So this white circle, white because we are made sons of light, according to later in Ephesians chapter 5. And at that instant of salvation, our new legal position is in Christ. We are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. The right circle is that because we are sons of God, children of light, we are to walk in the light. We are filled by the Spirit, and we are to walk by the Spirit. 
That is the basic framework. So the position is that we are the ones that are the called. We have been called. We have this exalted position. So we looked about, we started looking at a summary of the ministries of God, the Holy Spirit today. And I pointed out there is so much confusion about this. And it is because there is a lack of clarity and and in-depth study of what the scripture says. So, we started off with the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to the world. He is restraining evil, Second Thessalonians 2, 6 to 7. And during this church age, he restrains evil. But when the rapture of the church occurs, which ends, at the, which ends this church age, the Holy Spirit is removed, and Satan is given a free reign to try to do his best to bring order to the world and to rule what he has uh, stolen from man because man was originally created to be the ruler of the earth, but Satan stole that with Adam's sin in the garden. So everything falls apart. Satan is unable to uh, control or bring peace to the planet and so falls apart. And we said that the restraining ministry is a work of common grace and the Holy Spirit restrains evil and lawlessness during this church age. Well, you look around, you say, well, there seems to be a lot of evil and lawlessness. If he weren't restraining, it would be a lot worse. It would be North Korea everywhere. Okay? Second, the Holy Spirit convicts unbelievers when they hear the gospel. And this is what our Lord summarized in John 16, 8 through 11, that the Holy Spirit is doing three things when we are communicating the gospel to people. First of all, he convicts the world of sin, not in the sense of making them feel guilty because of all their sin. That's not the point. But as verse 9 says, because they do not believe in me. Christ paid the penalty for sin. That doesn't mean everybody goes to heaven. It means that sin penalty, that legal penalty that God assigned to Adam and his descendants the instant he sinned is now paid for. But you and I and everyone else is still born spiritually dead. And because we are born spiritually dead, we must be made alive. We are still born unrighteous. And even though we do many good things, we are still unrighteous. Jesus, at one of those moments where he spoke truth instead of trying to win friends and influence people, said to his disciples, you being evil. Yeah, that's what he said. You being evil, his, his disciples said, you being evil know how to give good gifts to men. Evil people know how to do good things. That doesn't mean they're not evil. That doesn't mean that their heart is not uh, turned against God and that they are not spiritually dead. So this is what the Holy Spirit is convicting the unbeliever of, that they have not believed in Christ, and therefore they are uh, still spiritually dead. They are unrighteous, and therefore they need righteousness, and that comes at, at the moment of faith and judgment because Christ judged the ruler of this world, that is Satan, on the cross. We looked at regeneration, that the problem is that we are all born spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So what do we need? 
The sin penalty is paid for, but we still need to be given new life. And so that new life comes when we trust in Christ, that we are born alienated from the life of God, Ephesians 4.18. And Jesus told Nicodemus that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. We cannot give birth to ourselves. We cannot do that ourselves. We can't will to be born again. At the end of that section in John 3, uh, we are told that he who does not believe in the Son of God is condemned because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God, not because of his sin, but because he has not believed, because by believing you receive life and you receive the righteousness of Christ. Titus 3.5 sums this up. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute. There we read, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration, even the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now last time we talked about the baptism by the Holy Spirit, and I defined it this way. The baptism, and it is by means of the Holy Spirit to be technically correct, is the work of Christ Christ baptizes by the Spirit, whereby at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with his death, burial, and resurrection and places the believer into the body of Christ, the church, as the Holy Spirit builds the new temple, which is the body of Christ. So all of that is happens. It, we don't experience a thing, but it happens. It is a legal transaction from heaven that is just as real, that are more real than anything that we can experience. So back to our diagram, we are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Matthew 3.11, it was prophesied by John the Baptist that the one who comes after me, he will, sometime in the future, baptize you by the means of the Holy Spirit and fire. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is the other key verse on this, that we are all baptized into one body. This is not immersion. This is not talking about water baptism. As I pointed out, there are eight baptisms in the New Testament. Only three are wet. The other eight, nobody gets wet. Nobody gets immersed into anything. When it talks about one of those baptisms, the baptism into Moses, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2 and 3, it says that all of those who crossed through the Red Sea were baptized using the same phraseology as with the Holy Spirit, were baptized by by the cloud and by the sea. They did not go into the cloud. They did not go into the sea. They did not get wet. It has to do with what God is identifying them with. God God is the, the cloud representing the Shekinah glory. The sea represents the judgment that's going to come on the Egyptians, and they are identified with that and, and are placed in, into Moses. And that demonstrates the salvation of Israel. The problem, as I pointed out, is a problem of translation. Often you hear people talk about the baptism of the Spirit. 
technically that's incorrect because that's a genitive and that phraseology is never used. A reason I belabor this is because we believe that God breathed out every word of Scripture, and every word, every phrase is therefore important, and to mishandle it leads to misunderstanding, and that's what happened here. The Gospels would translate it with the first phrase down below, baptism with the Spirit, and in 1 Corinthians, it was usually translated either baptism in the Spirit or baptism by the Spirit. But the reality is that in every one of the verses, the four Gospels, Acts 1, later on in Acts, I think it's Acts uh, 19, um, and or Acts 15, 16, Acts 16, everywhere else, it's the same phrase, but it's translated differently in 1 Corinthians. And this is what's led to the problem. The problem for many isn't a theological problem. For some it is. But it is a matter of looking at this and going, there must be two baptisms. There's one baptism. That's what is said here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse uh, 5, one baptism. And it is a baptism. And the reason it comes after one Lord is because it is Christ who still performs the baptism. And he uses the Holy Spirit uh, to do it. So we have one baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Christ performs this baptism. The instrument used to effect the, is the identification is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is often expressed that way. We are filled by means of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who is directly involved, but... He is under the authority of God, always under the authority of God, but it's more indirect. So it means the same thing in terms of what we have said. The Pentecostal interpretation that one is for unity, that's 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. one is for power, doesn't play out if there aren't two baptisms. There's only one, and they're all the same because they all use the same language. Galatians three twenty seven states this, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Same thing he says in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. In the Old Testament, Jews could go all the way into the, temp- into the temple or into the tabernacle. Only one could go all the way into the Holy of Holies. Le- Levitical priests could go into the holy place. Some Jews could go into the outer courtyard, but there were other courtyards, the courtyard of the women, the courtyard courtyard of the Gentiles, and so there were signs there warning that you could not go beyond certain uh, areas. This is no longer true because Christ has removed the veil, and that is that now we have this unity so that ethnicity does not impact our worship of God. This doesn't have to do with other roles. Men have some roles, women have other roles, uh, but it uh, impacts that personal access to God. And this is what uh, Paul has brought out in Ephesians uh, 2.18, for through him, we ha- that is the Holy Spirit, we have, excuse me, through him, that is Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. So 
they didn't have that in the Old Testament. Now we come to Titus 3.5. Putting together what the Bible says about being born again, being regenerated, with the baptism by the Spirit. I just flew past this last time. In Titus 3.5, we see the statement that it is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So as you can tell, I have translated and expanded that for clarification. This is a noted passage of difficulty in terms of handling the Greek. The key key phrase here is the phrase, he saved us. Who is the he? Well, if we look to the previous verse, it is God our Savior in verse 4. This refers to God the Father, who is the author of the plan of salvation. In the Trinity, there are role distinctions. They are equal in deity. Now, pay attention. This is really important. This is something that is foundational to some of the problems we have in our culture, is understanding the differences between men and women and other differences. Is that what the Bible says is that in the Trinity... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are absolutely, totally, in every way, equal in their personhood, in who they are. They are equally omniscient, equally omnipotent, equally omnipresent. They are equally righteous and just and love and all the other attributes. There's no distinction. One is not better or superior to the other in any way, shape, or form. And yet, even within the perfect Godhead, there are role distinctions. God the Father is the uh, one who is in authority over God the Son and over God the Holy Spirit. There are some, I think many in our culture, who have problems with authority. They think somehow authority is, is something we need to get away from. Everybody can do whatever they want to. But authority is inherent within the very relationships of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that the Father sends the Son to go to the cross, and then in passages we will look at in John 14, uh, the Son says that God sends the Spirit. Later he says he too sends the Spirit which shows that there is an authority structure in the Godhead that the Son is under the authority of the Father and the the Spirit is under the authority of the Son and the Father. And so being in an authority position or having a role distinction does not mean that you are of lesser personhood, that you are less equal, less important. Uh, If you say that or if you believe that, you're basically committing blasphemy against the Trinity because you are saying that that is what is inherent in role distinctions is inequality, and that is not the case. So I have always held that these positions, uh, this idea that role distinction means inequality is a lie from Satan designed to to destroy our understanding of the Trinity. And we must not commit that act of blasphemy. So he saved us. 
God the Son saved us. The Father's the author of the plan of salvation, and he saves us by the Son, who's not mentioned in this passage. It is God the Father said who saved us, and he saved us according to his mercy. So there is a standard that must be followed in the entire plan of salvation. God diligently planned out everything so that he could teach it through various symbols and sacrifices, things like that in the Old Testament, and that it is according to mercy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is grace in action. Oh, good. What's grace? Grace is the action of God's unmerited and undeserved love. We are sinners, alienated from the life of God, condemned, uh, corrupt, obnoxious to God, yet God loved us, the Scripture says in John 3.16, in such a way that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, that's just phenomenal. God overlooks our sinfulness, our darkness, our corruption, because we have been created in his image and likeness. That's why you can't really understand the cross without understanding Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It is because God created us different from all living beings in his image and likeness that he desires to save us despite our rebellion, despite our obnoxiousness to him. And so grace means that God's love flows to us even though we do not deserve it. He does the best for us he can in his omnipotence and omniscience. And so when grace is expressed, that idea is mercy, it's not also undeserved. So it's according to his mercy, according to the qualities of mercy that are at the core of his being, that he saved us. And then that is preceded by the phrase, it's not by works of righteousness, which means we can't do anything. In fact, the scripture says that, uh, that we can do nothing except trust him. For without faith, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. It is not that it is faith in and of itself that pleases God, for everybody exercises faith all the time. Even someone who is an extreme rationalist expresses faith. They have faith in their own ability, in their own ability to reason and think through to answers to questions. So everybody functions on the basis of faith. It is a faith in the promise of God. For he who comes to God believes that he must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And when it comes to righteousness, everybody thinks that they can do some things that impress God. But what Scripture says is we can't do anything to impress God because we have all violated God's standards in the epistle of James, James says, you haven't committed adultery, but you have committed murder. But if you've committed murder, you've broken all the law. If you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole law. And if you've broken the law of Moses, that just demonstrates you're a sinner. 
and you need to be saved by grace. So Isaiah 64, 6 says, We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, not our unrighteousness, but all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So uh, Paul says to Titus, It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of, and it's a it's a construction that I, I have to interpret here. It means the washing produced by regeneration. It's what's called in grammar a subjective genitive, where in the noun that it has conveys an action that it's performed. Uh, this is what's performed. So it's a washing that's produced by regeneration, even. It's usually translated just as and, but the and often has the sense of even. Now, if you want to have a little fun, go open your dictionary and look up the word even. I did that today. I looked in Oxford English Dictionary, the concise one. It didn't have a whole lot, gave about five categories. And I went to Collins. Collins had 27 different meanings for the word even. It has the sense of namely or that is. It is expanding on what was just said, clarifying it. So it is through the washing produced by regeneration that is, in other words, regeneration is the renewing that is produced by God the Holy Spirit. Now, when you see these words like washing, what does that remind you of? That reminds you of baptism. And the symbolism of baptism. So all these things are so tightly connected because God, God is working with a, the multiple facets of what transpired to save us. It's not just that he snaps his fingers and we're saved. In one sense, it's that way, but it's so much more complicated than that. And he does so much for us. So again, this is the backdrop of Galatians 3, 27 and 28. Now, one last thing before we move on. There is no command to be baptized by the Spirit. There is no command to be baptized by the Spirit because we don't do it. It, God does it for us at the instant that we trust in Christ as Savior. In the same way, there is no command for us to be indwelt by the Spirit. We are never told to be indwelt by the Spirit. It happens automatically for every church-age believer, uh, just as the baptism by the Spirit happens automatically at the instant of salvation. So what does the Bible teach us about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Again, our diagram. At the instant that we trust in Christ, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. We're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, And this is tightly connected to the fact that God the Holy Spirit uh, cleanses us. It's a washing that is produced by regeneration that cleanses us in our position before God. And then it will also, we tie in the imputation of righteousness and many, many other things that happen at the instant of salvation, but we're just focused on the Holy Spirit. And then we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And we can't lose that indwelling. That is ours forever. And that is different from the experiential reality. So Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.16 after he has 
reproved them and rebuked them several times in chapters 1 and chapter 2 for all of their sinful behavior. And we get the idea that all these people that Paul is writing to are these people, these letters in the New Testament are being written to are somehow really great, solid Christians. Most of the time, they're not. Those who lived in Corinth were incredibly uh, rebellious toward God, and they had all kinds of problems that Paul rebukes them for. They're arrogant, they're divisive, they're picking up sides with different apostles, say, well, I'm like Paul, somebody else says, I like Apollos, and the really holy ones would say, oh, you know, I follow Christ. And so Paul rebukes them for that. He rebukes them because they're in love with the rationalism and empiricism of the Greek philosophers, and they're uh, elevating that to an authority over the authority of Scripture. Uh, They let rank immorality take place uh, without rebuke in their congregation, where not only did everybody in the church know it was going on, but all of the people in the community knew what was going on and were appalled that these Christians wouldn't deal with it. So he's constantly having to, to deal with their, their arrogance and their pride and their sinfulness and all kinds of problems. And so he reminds them of their positional reality. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? You as individual believers, you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you. And what's important here is the word for temple is the Greek word naos. Now, you've we've gone through many studies with me in the past where we look at the tabernacle and the temple, that you have the outer courtyard, and inside there is the, the building, the temple itself, the holy place and the holy of holies. The word that was used to describe that inner that inner building is the word naos. If you're talking about the whole outer courtyard and you're talking about all of the temple precinct, then you would use the word heros. That would include all the areas where the Jews and the Gentiles are and everybody's out there. But if you're using the word naos, you're talking about that inner sanctum where God dwelt, where the Shekinah of God dwelt in the temple. And so he says, we are like that. We, in our bodies, are a temple of the, by the Holy Spirit. He, in essence, creates in us a sanctified place in our soul where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit dwell in us. And because of that, Paul is going to say, we, it's part of our calling, our high, exalted position in Christ. And therefore, we have to live consistently with that. Three chapters later, he repeats this. He says to them, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's in the soul. The soul's in the body. He's in the body. Uh, It's the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Later, he adds to this, and he says, you've been bought with a price, and you are not your own. Romans 6, you're either a slave of righteousness or a slave of Christ. Take your pick, but you're never neutral. Whenever we're sinning, we're acting like a slave to our sin nature. And so we confess sin, and we're forgiven and cleansed, and then we can walk with the Lord and learn what it means to be a bond slave of Christ. 
This goes back to this whole idea of unity and what God the Holy Spirit is producing in the new church that we studied in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. There he says, speaking to the Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Remember, the Jews were saved first from Acts 1 to Acts, I mean, Acts 2 to Acts 10. The church is only composed of Jews. Then after that, Cornelius and his household are saved, and the apostles realize the church is going to be composed of Jew and Gentile equally. And so he says, but we're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is talk not, it's not talking about Old Testament saints. It's talking about the early church Jewish saints. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that can't be referring to the Old Testament, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we're not only individually a temple with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but corporately the body of Christ is seen as a temple uh, constructed uh, for the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, that is, walking according to the sin nature, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. The Spirit indwells us individually. John fourteen sixteen and 17, this is the promise. For this is important to understand with the Scripture that when it talks about the fact that this is a fulfillment of the promise of God, that this promise is made in John fourteen six. That, that goes back to Titus, uh, Titus chapter three, uh, verse five, uh, that and uh, other passages that talk about the promise of God. Jesus said, "I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever." The Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and in you. Again, this is the Holy Spirit in each of us, not not only corporately, but individually. First John two twenty seven says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. This is uh, John's way of talking about the indwelling of the Spirit. The anointing, you often will hear in some churches that, oh, they got an anointing and they got anointing and they just did something and they sang and it was beautiful. Oh, that was such an anointing. That is an abuse of the language of the Bible. The anointing is Paul's language for the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, which comes to every believer at the instant of salvation. He said, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you. This is the role of the Holy Spirit in helping us to understand the word. The same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. Just as he has taught it to you, you will abide in him. Now, next time we're going to get to the sealing of the spirit, which I did not have time to cover today. Necessary to do some review. But all of these things are ours in Christ. These are these incredible things the Scripture tells us that God did for us at the instant of our salvation, elevating us in terms of our privileges 
above any believer in the Old Testament. The problem is, too often as believers, we are living as we have none of these things. We need to not be friends with the world. We need to be alienated from the world. And we need to conform to what the Scripture teaches. That is how we grow. And so that is our challenge. He's given us so much that our assets to give us the ability to live in a way no other believer in history has, and too often we ignore it, mostly because we're never taught it, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded of all so much that you've given us. We don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve all these many blessings that are ours in Christ. And yet you have given to the, these things to us out of your grace, out of your goodness, out of your desire to make uh, an exhibit of us as trophies of grace that throughout the ages people will be able to uh, go back and see and look at what you have done in this church age, elevating sinners who were alienated from you to such a position because of all that you have done for us, that you have made us alive together in Christ and you have raised us together and seated us with him in the heavenlies. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would make this very clear. Father, all of us have come to a point at life at one time where we realize that there is life after death and that there are options and that we can either try to earn our way there so that we end up in the good place, as people say, or we just act like you aren't there and ignore it and hope somehow it'll all just work out. But your scripture has revealed that there is a future for those who trust in you, that even though all are sinners, all have fallen short of your grace, that there is a free gift of salvation so that those who trust in you because of all you've done for us have eternal life, which can never be taken away. So, Father, we pray that you would make the gospel clear to those who listen to this message online or here, and that uh, all of us would have recognized that we must trust in Christ for our salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.